0: Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Jason Bates, and I'm joined by my colleague, Simon
1: Taylor. How's it going, Simon? Really well, Jay. How are you doing, my friend? Well, I say
0: joined by. We're obviously doing the obligatory Zoom link that everyone's doing around the world, sitting in front of a screen, looking at tiny images of colleagues and friends for eight, nine hours a day.
1: But we're staying privacy first in this episode, surely? Well, uh, I guess that, that brings us on to, the, uh, to the, the topic of today's conversation.
0: We're going to talk about digital identity. What is it? How it works? And the next use cases now and in the future, especially with the impact of COVID-19. Uh, we need some help here, I think, and we're joined by some excellent guests. We have Joe Blumendahl, Head of Strategy for MyTech. Welcome to the show, Joe.
2: Hi, Jason. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Um, yeah, so MyTech's a, a leading provider in <clears throat> remote bank-grade identity verification services. And um, uh, we're really the only NASDAQ-quoted provider who uses both technology, artificial intelligence, in our case, and forensic-level experts, to verify those governmental-issued documents and then compare that to face biometrics. Um, and in my role as a strategist, I help the internal uh, stakeholders like sales and, and, and product development, uh, but also clients and partners to get the best out of our services.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Emma, we've got Emma Lindley, Chief Commercial Officer at Trust Stamp and also co-founder of Women and Identity. Welcome back to Fintech Insider.
3: Thanks very much. How are you doing? Yeah, Good.
0: Can you tell us a little bit for uh, people who didn't hear your last appearance, a little bit about you and what you do?
3: Sure. So I uh, have been in the identity space since 2003. Um, I'm currently Chief Commercial Officer for a company called Trust Stamp. Trust Stamp, we're a privacy and artificial intelligence company, but we're focused on the use case of identity. So essentially, we take um, highly sensitive data data-like biometrics and we irreversibly transform it uh, into a format that you know, can cannot be transformed into its original state, i.e. a biometric. Uh, and we use artificial intelligence to then match that data. So it essentially means that companies can kind of um, utilize that data for, for a longer period of time. And at the moment, uh, biometrics obviously are seen as a kind of toxic asset. You know, it's a really challenging thing uh, for, for banks potentially to hold that data. Uh, and I'm also co-founder of Women in Identity. So uh, we're focused on bringing more diversity into the um, identity industry and uh, removing bias out of products.
0: Excellent, thanks for that. And finally, we have Marcel Wendt, CTO and founder of Dig Identity. Thanks for joining us, Marcel.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you and your company?
4: Yeah, so I um, <clears throat> founded the company 12 years ago um, with the purpose of creating uh, uh, digital identities. And what we mean with digital identities that we are enabling and protecting people's digital life. Um, that was a long journey, 12 years. And now finally, uh, especially after COVID, uh, it, uh, d- d- the need of digital identities becomes more and more uh, important and everybody understands why we need them.
0: Great. Thanks, Marcel. Well, let's jump in. Uh, And let's start off with some scene setting. You know, you guys work in digital identity all day, every day. And I think the thing that uh, most occurs to me is a question of definitions. Like, what is digital identity? Can someone uh, enlighten us? Emma, go for it.
3: So I think the really interesting thing about this call is you've got three kind of identity people on the uh, on the call, and we might not all agree about what digital identity is. Uh, one of the interesting things I think about is um, is you know I'm kind of Fairly prolific on Twitter, and um, even identity people on almost a monthly basis. There's like some monumental kind of Twitter argument about what identity is. Um, so, you know, when I kind of say to people when they're joining the industry, is if it feels confusing um, and a bit fragmented, that's because it is. Um, and even identity people can't agree what identity is. So, I'll give you my definition. Uh, Marcel and Shaw and um, Joe will probably disagree with me, but. Um, we see, I, I see identity as being three domains. Uh, you've got the identification domain, the authentication domain, and the authorization domain. Um, in the identification domain, that's typically, you know, it, you're binding the real world identity with um, you know, with a set of identity documents, essentially. So somebody has to prove who they are in the identification domain. Uh, so I want to say to a bank, I'm Emma Lindley, they'll say, well, we need to see your passport, your driving license and various proof. You know, often that's bound by regulation. Once we've got to a certain level of assurance that I am Emma Lindley, I'm then given a set of credentials. Typically, those tend to still be usernames and passwords. That's obviously bad. Uh, we're trying to do more stuff in the authentication domain. You know, biometrics obviously is, is something that, um, you know, more organizations are starting to use. We see that in uh, in Europe, we have um, obviously biometrics mandates from people like Visa and MasterCard. But essentially what it means is the authentication domain is we're saying we're giving you a set of credentials so that you just need to come back with those credentials and we'll know that it's you and we don't have to re-identify you. And then in the authorization domain, what we're saying, Saying is um, we're allowing you with those credentials to go on and do something. That itself is to me that's what a digital identity is. Um, it's not linear that process. You know, um, if somebody wants to go and do additional things in the authorization domain, and their set of credentials that they got in the authentication domain only allow them to do a certain thing, and they want to go and do something that requires another level of assurance, they would have to go back and perhaps be re-identified, but. That to me is a digital identity. You know, it's that it's the whole process, um, but it's the the kind of the set of credentials within the authentication authorization domain that allow you to go and do things.
0: Great. So we've got identification connecting something in the physical world, whether that's a person or a company or something with with other uh, other me other trust mechanisms to show that I'm that person or entity. Then I have to repeatedly be able to rather than reprove that every time i'm given some credentials and then those credentials let me do something whether that's buy land invest buy alcohol whatever that thing is joe what do we think similar to your uh, definition or are we going to have a uh, scrap
2: <laughs> for now I'll, I'll agree with emma um, yeah so i think it's a, it's a, it's a and it's so true what she says um every week there's a new definition that comes out people are confused Initially, I thought people outside of the business were confused, but now I'm sure we all are. Um, and it's evolving. It's changing all the time. So I, th- I think it's true. It's a, it's, it's, the, it's a combination of trust signals that then are translated basically into something that will allow me to access. So I fully agree with verification, authentication, authorization. That's, that's what digital identity is today. Great.
0: Okay. So we've got two of the experts agreeing. Marcel, come on. What do you say? Uh,
4: Yeah, no, no, no. Um, Yeah, we know each other already a long time, uh, all three, so we are are, uh, living in the same world. So it's absolutely the binding to to the real world, and that can be a person or an entity or uh, uh, another vehicle or uh, IoT. That can be anything what you can can bind. Um, Authentication, uh, sure, uh, credentials, uh, we try to avoid them, so we don't have credentials in our solution. Um, we, we have an, an authentication mechanism connected to your mobile phone because you forget your password always, uh, so you can't with our solution. And the authorization, that, that's a really big uh, big scheme uh, because you, you can be authorized by your company to do something on behalf of your company. So in the authorization, it's also binding identities to each other. Or I'm authorized my car uh, to pay uh, the parking lot and that kind of things. So the authorization scheme that, that's growing and growing uh, while the identities uh, underneath are growing.
0: So it sounds like uh, in the abstract, we all agree, um, but actually everyone brings in something different. I mean, you just mentioned IoT and devices and cars, and then we've got people, and then we've got companies that are legal entities. Um, and, and is it the fact that it gets more confusing because under those three headings, there are so many different uh, intricacies of what we're really talking about? Is that is that where the difficulty is, that on the abstract, sure, these concepts make sense, but the implementation across... I don't know, my car paying for petrol and setting that up versus um, an 18-year-old buying a can of beer in the uh, the local um, supermarket, that's quite a b- wide breadth of, uh, of use cases.
4: My opinion is that if, if you uh, put it in, in, in the buckets that where Emma started with, uh, the identification, the authentication, and the authorization, I think could be very clear. But the problem is that these definitions are mixed uh, by a lot of people. So they call it authentication while they mean identification True. or the other way around. And there is the co- big
2: confusion. Yeah. 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 And then it's also contextual, right?
3: Yeah.
2: So the, that that brings in an extra level of complexity there as well.
1: Is there something, guys, about um, how... Uh Identity doesn't look the same around the world. Uh, different countries have different approaches and different legal constructs for what uh, what identity is. And while at the most basic level, the the identification, authentication and credentials sort of stacks up, if I'm being identified in India or China or Norway, it looks very different to the UK or the US. And other pros and cons of different global approaches and you know some have said oh well you know big techs are going to be involved and there's fears about privacy so how do you think um how do you think about this stuff joe where there are differences in different countries and what are the pros and cons of different country approaches
2: um, I think some some countries have taken a, have, have sort of gone fast forward and uh, think of Estonia. I was looking around and, at their example again, um, and there are if it's done well and it's, it's it safeguards the privacy of uh, of us as a consumer. I think that's that's good. If it's uh, under a regime that uh, might not have my personal privacy as the most important thing, then then it becomes a bit more challenging. I believe. Um, It is one of the problems that we have. Let's say, zoom in on Europe, we have the EIDAS scheme and then all the different translations of that into legislation in each country. That makes it more difficult to build an interoperable system. Uh, So that's one angle. I'm curious to see what the others are saying. The other one is the trust that Jason just introduced or talked about as well. Do we trust the the big techs with our data and with our uh, personal information Uh, If not, who would we trust? So that's the other angle that is super important to talk about or take take into account.
1: Great thoughts, Joe. And I'm going to ask Emma as well, just to compare and contrast sort of why does ADAR in India look different to the Norway model, EIDAS, lots of acronyms throwing around. Could you just pull those apart for me a little bit? Give me some definitions and sort of explain the broad differences and then maybe explain why different people trust different things.
3: So um, I think I'd start with um, identity is um, is very, very cultural. Um, And I think, you know, uh, and I never kind of come with any judgment in any way in terms of the way that uh, certain countries have had to start their identity schemes. Because um, I think it depends on, and Joe touched on this, it depends on the political um, construct of that particular country. Um, If it's a more authoritarian, perhaps, uh, you know, political construct, they will perhaps look, government will go, okay, we're going to perhaps have command and control, Uh, we might have a central data store, you know, and they will take a different view on this. And then they'll say to private sector, we're going to build it, you use it. Um, if you look at and you know I'm kind of I'm generalizing um, if you look at more kind of democratic countries, um, there might be more privacy legislation in place then you know there might be some some more regulation that actually um, sits alongside it and therefore you know people might go well we don't necessarily want it to be developed and controlled by the government. Uh, the government certainly might need to be a player on that. Um, and so what we see is more collaboration. So if you look to places like Canada, you see collaboration across the public and private sector. And um, if you look at the UK, even with GovUK Verify, you know, it was a collaboration between the public and private sector. And so I think the political has a very big effect on it. And um, I think the other thing is, and so if we look at Adahar specifically with India You might look at that and go okay that's a democracy so that doesn't make sense in terms of what you've just said um but the reality about india is most people you know many people didn't have even a birth certificate so trying to start an identity scheme in somewhere where they have no birth certificates um, is a real challenge and so they had to start with biometrics first you know they've kind of done a centralised and, and and whatever your kind of viewpoint is, it on it is and and it's it's also very when you talk to people in India, it's very split. You know I've had people come to me and say, well, it's the worst thing that's that's kind of happened. Um, you know because lots of people have have been excluded. For example, you know when Aadhaar was set up, blind people couldn't use it. So you're taking people that are already marginalised that might not have a lot of money you know, who are probably, you know, very poverty stricken. And then we're, you know, and they've got a whole set of, you know, um, issues that they're facing already. And then we actually make their lives worse putting in a digital identity scheme. But then I've talked to other people in India and have gone, honestly, it's the best thing that we've done for our economy. And so, you know, these things are never, um, they're they're never perfect. And I don't think there, there ever is a real silver bullet. Um, but I think they they are very, very contextual to and cultural to that particular market. And that's why we get so many differences in the approaches.
0: But maybe we can structure this around the three areas that you brought out. So if we, if we talk specifically to start off with about identification, I mean, I guess you just brought up that there are some places where there are already uh, analog real world identification schemes. Some places have uh, driving licenses, some have identity cards, some have passports, some don't have any at all. But actually, that connecting a physical person, legal entity or thing with, with some other network of trust, I guess, seems to be the start point. Uh, Marcel, is that right?
4: Yeah. And I, I want even to go back to 1804, uh, to Code Napoléon. Because we see a big difference between countries where Napoleon was and where they weren't. So when uh, I founded the company 12 years ago, we've built the the infrastructure identity uh, for the Dutch government. And that was pretty easy because we have an authoritative source. Because since 1804, everybody was uh, forced um, uh, to register your surname by the government. So there is a ledger where we can check that. Um, in the UK, when we went to the UK with the GovUK Verify, um, I was a little bit shocked that it wasn't there because this, this was my normal uh, um, thinking of, of identities. So there we need to build the identities from a lot of other uh, data sources. And you see, uh, that's why I found it, uh, the difference between uh, Napoleon countries and non-Napoleon countries. that, that That's a real big difference how they treat the identities uh, uh, the real world identities by government
3: i think the, the other thing is the collaborative nature of a particular country um it's particularly when you're looking at countries where we're saying well it's not going to be the government that's going to create this it's going to have to be some kind of scheme that's set up between the participants whether it you know be government and private sector or private sector working together um and one of the the interesting things about that is the more and you know I've been looking at this in in some detail um the more collaborative the nature of the culture the easier it is for them to do that and the more competitive the nature of the culture the less easy which kind of makes sense right so if we look at um like the Netherlands for example If we look at the Scandinavian markets, they tend to be more collaborative in nature. And we can see that through payment systems like Ideal in the Netherlands. They're now, you know, obviously there's IDIN, they're looking at, you know, building an identity system over there. Obviously, Marcel has been working with digital Identity on uh, digital identity systems in the Netherlands, Bank ID within Sweden. And obviously, that's been a collaboration between the banks. And so, if you look at markets like you know the u k the u s where we don't have a digital identity scheme, they're very, very competitive countries because I think there is this view of well the winner we have to have the we have to have winners and losers and the winner takes all and digital identity, in my view, isn't a winner takes all type play um it's a shared gain and shared risk play
0: so I guess you're you know you're bringing other components here about the industry and how it addresses the lack of a established scheme, but I guess from from my perspective, especially in the UK, uh, digital identity always gets combined with civil liberties. The the whole actually, I don't want to be catalogued, and you can't force me to take a you know a card around. Um, Joe, I guess this is where you know digital identity connects with something about a country's view of their. Acceptance of having a number being catalogued,
2: yeah that's especially true. we've seen that uh, um, uh, in in several countries. you can imagine that in Germany there's a lot of resistance culturally there as well. One other thought that was coming to mind is that <clears throat> we shouldn't think of this, I think uh, or talk about it as if there's at some point somebody in a government that wakes up one day and says, "Hey, do you know what we should do today? We should get this digital identity thing fixed that's not the way it's worked over time so there's been things popping up in 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 companies, ideas coming, and then government following, and then there's regulators we haven't talked about uh, yet either, who then have to follow as well. So there's there's this constant evolving and people following up on ideas that have been built. Uh, and then that's uh, dropped into the culture, and like you say, Jason, of, of the country, and then can easily be uh, pivoted in a very uh, different direction quickly, at least that's what we've now seen in the circumstances that we've come in with the COVID-19, it can all of a sudden be pivoted in a, in, in a direction that we might not have expected. So yes, I think it's so true that uh, the culture drives a lot of the adoption and the expectations, things of the, the, the COVID apps that everybody's talking about. One country, everybody's fine, or at least doesn't say they're not fine. And other countries, there's so much resistance, they don't even try
0: interesting so I guess within that identity you know with that first bucket the the bucket of talking about identity there are schemes or there aren't schemes there's a view of the acceptability of those or not and then there are there are either central players whether they're government government and commercial or commercial players on their own I guess the the biggest issues seem to be in the countries that don't have the scheme the the, uh, the um, uh the general populace are pretty worried and skeptical about these things and now don't really want the government to do it but don't trust big tech like uh, how do you do that identity piece in those kinds of countries which i assume the uk and the us you know fall part of
3: emma any so i'm gonna kind of challenge that viewpoint um a little bit and um i mean i've worked um On GovUK and Verify, one of the good things that they they did do um, was a lot of usability testing. Um, And I I think what's interesting is, um, you know, we sometimes make sweeping statements of, you know, well, people don't trust government or people don't trust this or they don't trust that. Um, and again, it's a, it's it's often quite a subjective view because you know the way that the UK set up that scheme, you know, with private sector. I think that's one of the ways to gather trust is to is to build that with you know public and private sector collaborating around you know set of rules. Um, you know, privacy needs to be in there. Uh, one of the things that they did, in my opinion, that was was good. And I'm I'm, I'm not um, you know I'm not saying everything was good, but this other thing was was good was that they set a privacy and consumer advisory group and that was set outside of the actual scheme itself Um, and I think that was and they came up with a whole set of privacy principles and they were independent of the scheme itself so that was the governance in place so so I, I think it's I think it's possible to do it. It's more complicated in those kinds of markets, right? Because you've you've got to take more people along the journey with you. You've got to take those people that are like, well, we don't trust big tech, and we're going to take those people that are like, I don't trust government. Um, but I think it, in those markets is about collaboration. But that that's the thing that makes it more complicated.
1: Joe, is there something about that sort of um, trust element as well in terms of usability versus security? Like, how much is it solving a problem for somebody? How much is it uh, really making a difference to their lives? Do they feel like they're getting that sense of value from it? Versus, you know, if it's coming from government or big tech, you know, is it is it optics? Is it utility? How how do you how do you think that piece really plays into whether people will, will want to use the, the service in, in different places? Yeah,
2: I was going to go in the same direction. because before trust, isn't there something like awareness? I mean, Emma and Marcel questioned, uh, I think six, seven years ago, I didn't see so much consumer concerns around or questions around trust and all that. So when they were sharing personal information, unconsciously, we were all doing it all the time. I mean, typing stuff in on Google or using biometrics on a device, like a phone, etc. So it's not until recently that now consumers have started to get... The head around the idea that it might not be great to share this all the time with everybody in return for so-called free services. Um, and uh, so I think there's, that we get lured, if you will, into sharing uh, personal identifiable, identifiable information because, to your point, Simon, we'd like to use that service. I couldn't imagine not using Google. Uh, it'd be difficult to do. Um, But but
0: I guess that's the big thing, isn't it? I remember talking to one of the Gov.Verify guys, uh, he was giving a talk on stage, and he was talking about sort of, I guess, the lack of adoption. And it seems that there's just not been that killer use case, Joe, that's really drawn people into it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But having said that, uh, with technology evolving, uh, technology like MyTech has, but other, others have too, <clears throat> it's become easier to sort of bridge that gap between physical identity like a passport uh, and my face into the digital world where I'd need to prove my identity. And that's where the adoption is evolving. Um, and and again, with in, in, in a situation like this, that we're all sort of working from home and living from home and everything, from eating all the way through to entertainment it just has to keep continuing. But I can only do that for a large part through digital channels, and that's where digital identification all starts. So the adoption is um, its not nice to have anymore, really, is it?
0: Uh, So I guess, you know, to bring that first bucket to a close, uh, the thing that we most see in in identification from a consumer or technology perspective is this sort of passport scanning or, you know, or bills or logging in with something else in a different uh, territory. Uh, Is is that where most of the dollars in this bucket are being spent on scaling that up? Can you really do, you know, uh, 100% great passport uh, scanning from a Nigerian passport, uh, you know, in today's environment? Marcel. Nice help.
4: Uh, yes, I think we can. And, and and I want to come back of your killer use case. Uh, we had one uh, during the, the, the first COVID peak, not a nice one, but because all the job centers in the UK were closed and everybody that lost their job, the only possibility to get some payment from government was the digital channel. So only via Gov UK verify, you can prove yourself who you are. And therefore seeing that verifying passports, even very hard ones, there we work together with MyTech, with Joe, uh, is a great job. I think we can can handle every document around the globe. Uh, But it's not the only thing. Uh, So you still need to check more things than only a passport. So checking a passport is not not enough to get a digital identity.
0: I was going to say, is this the point where we get to scoring and uh, and adding a variety of, uh, of factors in? To to see if we know that who that person is,
4: yeah, correct. So it's it's uh, you need to check also uh, if the picture on 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 the document is the same person who's uh, at this moment registering. So we do that with the selfie check. Uh, So and there are other layers uh, on on top of that.
2: What I've seen, I I don't know what you think, Emma and uh, Marcel, is that for a long time it's been very siloed in our clients. uh, This whole verification, authentication, even authorization as well as not layered we've sort of gone out there a long time saying you need a layered approach i mean my technology is great love it but it's not good enough to become compliant as a bank it's one piece of the kyc puzzle so there, there were all sorts of boxes that everybody was in siloed and then the different layers as well and everybody's in and i think that's breaking apart now people understanding you need that layered approach um in, and and also the silos are falling apart a bit and there's within companies like Emma was talking about the collaboration necessary for people to get to something that will drive the adoption
0: so i guess moving on to the authentication piece you know people were used to getting their little calculator from their bank or their little fob with their dongle um a lot of that seems to have moved on to phones now in terms of uh, authenticator apps that generate those one time passwords you know, how is this evolving? Uh, Once I've proven who I am, and you've given me some kind of credentials, how are those layered into allowing the use of particular services, especially in financial services? Emma, do you want to kick us off?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's complicated for me, and I get this stuff. Um, You know, I I think we, we are making, by not having a collaborative, consolidated approach to this, we are opening up further threat vectors because we're confusing consumers of how to do things. And so by being being continuing to being fragmented and it continuing to be a competitive market, um, we are making the risks bigger um, and that will result in more fraud in the UK. I can only see it going that way. And so I, I think we can continue to put you know, new things in front of people, we can continue to put, you know, card readers, you know, one time passcodes, we can behavioral biometrics, you know, um, facial biometrics, we can continue to put these types of things in in front of users. Um, But I think we're going to end up with more um, increasing confusion amongst our consumer base. Um, I mean, I I use this example, because it's a, a really interesting one. So um, my mother-in-law is in her seventies, and so she came to me one time because her bank had decided to start using biometrics. And she said, "Well, I've seen this article in the newspaper, and my bank's going to start using, you know, facial biometrics." And what I thought she was going to say to me is, "I'm, I'm not going to use it because you know I don't understand it or something along those lines." And she didn't. She went, "I'm, I'm, ju- I'm not going to use it," and I was like, "Okay, well, what you know, why, why is that?" And she said, "Well, I don't think it's secure." So I'm like. Okay, I know she doesn't know anything about biometrics, right? So I was like, so why don't you think it's secure? And she's like, well, I just don't think face is secure. Like a way of kind of verifying yourself. And I was like, well, what do you think is secure? And she's like, well, I think Iris would be more secure. Which was <laughs> really interesting because she's she's right, right? She was actually right. But She's probably like watched the Minority Report or something like that. (laughs) But this was the interesting thing, right? So the first time she hears about, you know, my bank's going to use biometrics, it's a headline. It's not in a communication from her bank, you know. So it's just really badly communicated. And um, so I think we, you know, both the identity companies in the space and also organizations that are using these technologies have to get better at explaining them to consumers.
1: Emma, i think that really makes me think of the layering thing that joe was talking about um but if you're layering it what does what does best in class look like for authentication will we start to see standardization have we already seen some of that we saw it you know around the devices we've seen it around other bits and pieces Are, are these standards emerging and is it just a case of banks just need to stop with the security theater and adopt this balance between something somebody can use but that's going to be secured most of the time and then layer on additional complexity when they need.
0: I was going to say the same thing, that um, you know, in the tech world, we've seen this move where everyone had their password, everyone had their email thing, whatever. And now actually Google Authenticator or Orphi or one of those things stores a variety of, of one-time use passwords for seven or eight of my services. So it's that classic story of unbundling and rebundling but of course, in a heavy regulated environment, you know, are you going to trust some third party to handle authentication or, or uh, you know, if mathematically you can prove that, that it is secure, still are your stakeholders and shareholders and board members going to say, well, shouldn't we be handling that? Can't we do our own little calculator? Marcel, you know, how do you see this, you know, unbundling, rebundling standardization of, of authentication happening?
4: Yeah, so so there is still a difference between your if the authenticator is not binded to your identity, it still says nothing. So there, there is a, a binding issue as well. So in within the FIDO Alliance, there isn't standardization uh, about authenticators. Um, we have built our own authenticator into the secure element from the phones. Personally, of course, because it was our own invention, we think that's still the best. Um, but that part can be done also at one time by the Apples and the Googles. Uh, again, uh, back to the big tech uh, who, who's running this, uh, this scheme. So I think that will be the challenge. And that's also from country to country the difference. Uh, because in the Nordics, the banks are trusting also the schemes of the government. So they operate together uh, with these credentials in these schemes. You have, we've seen that also in the Canadian market. But other markets... Even Barclays was one of the the verifier verify identity providers, but they stepped out. So, um, in a lot of countries, there is still a confusion between identity and the client itself. They think if the identity is in another bucket by an identity provider, they've stolen my clients. But that's not true. It's not. We do nothing as a client perspective with these identities. Uh, but that's a big difference between these. Uh, the bigger companies where the adoption outside government is not going that fast as it should be.
1: It's an interesting idea, and I, I'd love to get um, Joe's views on this, that ownership of customer. This is this sense that a that a bank owns, that that an insurer owns their customer because they've identified them and now they have an account. And they're worried about losing that relationship with them because they obviously, they want them to continue to be a customer. But actually, Joe, how do you deal with that? And what do you think of as the business case for, for why you would layer how you do um, identity and authentication and why you would use something that is more digital what, what what problems could it solve for them rather than it being a threat?
2: Do you mean for the banks or for the consumers?
1: Well, I, I'm sort of shifting now to the to the banks and the insurers yeah. and, and that sort of side. Surely there's a lot of cost in dealing with the paper processes, is or is it or is that more secure?
2: Yeah, no. So I mean, these uh, the, the fact that we don't have a true digital identity yet. So what we what we have is what I always say is a digitized identity because the 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 basic and the and, and the the, the the, the source where we get the information from is a piece of paper. And um, it, it's a passport, it's plastic for these days. Um, so I think uh, there's a lot of cost saving if we go truly digital for, for banks and insurers. There's a lot of uh, risk mitigation that can be done because password, PIN codes, etc. That's definitely a horrible way forward. Or KBAs and, and, and bureau checks are, are certainly outdated with all the data breaches now. So there's a lot of um, cost savings, that simple cost savings that can be done there. Um, and there's another point about, about what Emma was just saying, um, about <clears throat> mother-in-law and, and the face and, uh, as a biometric. We need to remember that it always has to, to, to Marshall's point, be anchored into something. And if the passport, driver's license, or identity card is the very first point, that's where we start. That doesn't tie to a voice biometric or a, or a finger vein biometric because it's just simply not on there. The only thing on there is your face. So that's why you then have to uh, think of face potentially as the first biometric. And that's why I think a lot of banks are using that now. The alternative is tying more modalities, as we sometimes call them, more different types of biometrics at the initial onboarding. So welcome on board, dear client. You need to grab a picture of your passport. Please take a selfie. um, Say this sentence. And then there's another biometric. And the reason I'm saying that is that I believe that um, I believe in choice. So if I'd have a choice between which modality, which type of biometric I want to use, I don't trust face. I'd rather use voice. Um, that would drive the adoption rate. Which then we come full circle. The banks helped most as well. Um, so there's there's if we could introduce that factor of choice. Um, And remember that authentication is also contextual. So if I could um, configure my banking app and say any money transfer above a a certain amount, let's say 500 euros, I want a second biometric as authentication to be asked. Um, All of a sudden, we've got a super safe but very frictionless way of working. And it gives me a lot of sense of control as a consumer and choice in that sense. not sure if that answers the question.
0: Well, I'm going to take a quick pause here, because uh, before we get on to, I guess, the third bucket, authorization, and indeed talking about what this means in the COVID world, uh, we've got to thank our sponsor, uh, who happens to be here with us today. This episode of FinTech Insider is brought to you by MyTech combining the world's best forensic experts with industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. So you can discover more at mytechsystems.com. So um, that third bucket, um, the authorization piece. So we know I've proven who I am by connecting with my birth to the goods and driving license and I don't know, swimming badge, and I've now got my little dongle or my one time password or my you've got my biometrics and now I need to be authorized to, to do something? Is that the, the kind of third area? Well, what are the you know, the scope of, of things in this authorization space?
4: Um, d- depends on the use case. So when I'm doing something with the government, there is no authorization because if I want to pay my taxes to government, government says you're always authorized to pay your taxes. But if I'm going to an employee case, so that's the scheme we have in the Netherlands, uh, I need to be authorized by the director of the company to do the tax filing or to change something in the chamber of commerce, or that will be different authorizations. And that's fit in, in, in the Dutch scheme. Um, but. What I already mentioned, when I'm authorized my car to pay the parking a lot, if I have a self-driving car who's parking automatically, he's paying the bill as well. So I'm authorizing this IoT device. So this authorizing thing that will be bigger and bigger, but very complicated, even maybe more complicated than digital identity itself.
0: Uh, I guess, Anna, the other thing that comes to mind is that um, authorization has tended to be a very blunt instrument so if I think about banks, and especially I think about um, SME bank accounts, like once you're authorized, you basically can do most things. You can log in, you can see all the payments that have been made, you can make everything happen. I guess that is part of this story, this uh, trying to create granular authorizations, rather than that we've only really been able to do it for a couple of people. Therefore, once they're in, uh, away you They're go. into
3: everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so I think it it does um, offer a more sophisticated approach, both from a, you know, from a, from a risk perspective as well. So, you know, you can just kind of give people access to certain parts of it and then say, well, actually, you know, if they want to start to move from that account into another account, we can go back through the loop again, but that should be seamless to the customer. Um, and at the moment, it's a bit clunky, isn't it? You know, they, they feel like they're moving from one product to another. Um, and often the customer experience is not very good. They might end up back in a branch. Um, it's all a bit horrible. So, you know, creating a more seamless environment for them to move from one service to another, that's the key to it. You know, the whole digital identity is the key to it.
0: Uh, I guess that clunky approach ties in with, with the digitized versus the truly digital joe because in some ways we've had this very clunky uh, identity document that has my age my date of birth where i was born a photo of me and everything else which the person i'm identifying with doesn't need all of that and then once i have used that i suddenly get this blanket approval to do anything whereas actually it's truly digital identity about taking that down into smaller blocks, which means you only get information that you need in order to be, allow me to do only a small number of things?
2: Yeah, so so absolutely. I think that's more the conversation around self-sovereign identity, which the self-sovereign part meets, that I can decide what part and what verified credential I'll share for what. In the context of authorization, that's, that's very true. That would introduce much more control over who does what i was once at a very large company uh, walking around and um, i could just see the bank passes with sticky notes on there with the pin code on it in the financial so people just pass that around um so here's here's where digital helps because now all of a sudden that that's all auditable right now with that i just give you the bank pass with the code on it nobody really knows who did the payment could be you could be me um, once you go digital, and you would even and you tie a biometric to an authentication, all of that problem's gone. It's no doubt either you or me.
4: Yes, but but um, when I'm I'm going back to the to the government side from from the taxpayer. So HMRC is not interested who is doing the tax filing. Uh, if it's from a company. Uh, So in the Netherlands, they only need to know if this company is doing his tax filing for VAT or the income tax or a company tax or the tax paid on the loans. Um, It doesn't matter who that is. So that can be an employee, but it can also be an accountancy firm on behalf of that company. So for for the government, for the tax authority, it doesn't matter. So the authorization scheme is more important to the people themselves and to the companies that they are aware who they authorize to do this on behalf of the company. So it's not always the granular thing at the department or the company uh, who's delivering the service
1: it's interesting what you say there Marcel you've almost got a hierarchy of where the granularity is needed between large organization and large organization they just need to know it's each other but actually if they trusted each other to have decent security systems they could authenticate themselves and have more and more fine-grained detail about the, the level of authentication and that's you know we've seen lots of attempts to create alliances around federated identity as, as a way of like trusting another larger entity for all of the things that, that sort of sit inside it that's been been one area. Do you think we'll see more of that in the future? And maybe uh, Emma, Marcel, if you want to pick up on that, is federated identity a way to go? And how much is there a sort of trade-off between this uh, sort of increased user experience where I get to Have extra privacy where I'm maintaining those little bits of data control versus um, sharing more and potentially being able to uh, give more products and services to those users as a result of that. So how do you feel about the federated identity versus sort of that um, data explosion?
3: So uh, when you talk about the data explosion, are you specifically talking more about self-sovereign identity?
1: Uh, yes, but also um, I'm more talking about the sort of the world of Google and Facebook that we live in, where with more data I get more relevant ads, and so there has been this push towards getting more and more data to be able to hyper serve localized, personalized products and services to individuals. And actually, in a GDPR world, we're now in a position where. people are trying to retain control and there are lots of benefits to being able to have these fine-grained controls from a privacy standpoint so how's that going to play out and will federated identity help us or will it be self-sovereign identity and 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 sort of how how do you see that picture
3: so i mean i i think the idea in terms of the conceptual idea in terms of federated identity where you have um a group of organizations collaborating um you know sharing some risk Um, creating a better customer experience for customers um, because, you know, they can federate those identities and use them across multiple services. You know, that idea um, versus a kind of self-sovereign where the consumer is completely in control of things. I think one of the challenges that we have, and I go back to one of the points that I made earlier, is consumers' understanding of actually what's happening. And um, that is a tiny subset of what we're talking about when we go to self sovereign identity, you know, so actually, you know, when we think about the whole self sovereign identity and, you know, all the advocates of that type of stuff, I, I like the idea. I just don't know how we're going to get there with the level of understanding that we have today with consumers that we, that we have. And, and, you know, you, 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 you could try and do that, but you're going to leave a whole bunch of people behind.
0: I guess that's where where we get with lots of technologies. We see the future, you know, the future place where all of this stuff works. It's that getting there that seems to be the, uh, the difficult bit. Um, Joe, I, I mean, do you think COVID-19 in some way is driving this along? Will actually, you know, create some need that creates the bridge that then takes us to this place where we need to go?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I think it's going. To, what it's doing, it's amplifying everything that was already there. From a fraud perspective, to um, us as a consumer, needing genuinely needing to access digital services, uh, and then in a much broader sense. So it's the physical world that's changing, right? And the only only alternative now is the, is the digital world. So COVID is going to going to do that, and um, I think. Um, government the governments are going to have to act now quickly to to keep us all going and keep our keep our societies going because it's a trade off we're looking we're, we're looking to keep as many people healthy as we can lockdown but also keep the economy as healthy as it as we can hence try to get out of the lockdown and i think data digital that that is there's something there that will help us Help us do that intelligently and safely for 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 both those sides of the uh, of the coin. Um, I think what this will do potentially is um, force between brackets governments to move a bit quicker than they potentially would have without COVID, and then uh, leave out some of the privacy concerns, but also some of the opportunity to have a more collaborative model, like Emma was saying, with um, with businesses and, uh, um, uh, and companies out there. I don't know what you guys think about that, but I think that's, uh, that, could, that could be one of the results.
4: Marcel? Yeah, what I think is, it's a, so from your digital identity, it's not only proving uh, uh, yourself when you want to log in for a kind of services, uh, but also signing documents. So with this same identity, you can legally sign documents, really legally binding uh, not as the most uh, used uh, document signing service at this moment where you reply to an email address because your secretary can do that or your son or your, your girlfriend, doesn't matter. And especially in the working situation, that's very, um, yeah, a lot of fraud will be there. So we see finally getting in demand of document signing on, on a proper way. And the law is already there for many years since 1999 that it's legally binding in all Europe. Uh, and we see now finally taking this off uh, because they need to do it because signing documents is very hard at the moment if you're uh, working from home.
0: So what's the fastest way to to do this? For my money in in territories where there isn't a you know an existing identity scheme, open banking seems like the obvious uh, candidate, given that, actually you people have had to have been kyc to get bank accounts and now there are digital ways in which we can authenticate and give access you know through open banking is that a likely approach or are you i mean are you seeing through your clients through your interactions uh fast moves to to develop it through some other route
3: and so i think uh what we do within what we need within digital identity um, is we need more open data. I think open banking is is one of the ways in which we can, you know, access more of that data. Um, open banking though only do, only allows people that have got bank accounts uh, to participate. So um and digital identity is much wider than that. So just like we have people in the UK that don't have passports and driving licenses, we've got people that have got, haven't got have got bank accounts. The crossover between those is probably reasonably high, I'm going to guess. So, um, you know, we I think open banking is a way of us doing it. I don't think it's the way that's actually going to be the silver bullet that gives us something that is a ubiquitous way in which everybody can participate in the economy in the way that they should.
0: Joe, what, what's your view? What's, what are you, is your advice to clients?
2: I think, I mean, open banking and digital identity is an opportunity for banks. Most of our clients are banks. Um, they could, uh, they've already done for all of us the KYC and AML under a very stringent regulated process or within a, a framework. So they could monetize that. They could. They could be uh, an ID issuer, and then yes, that could accelerate uh, uh, some of the challenges we have seen. I'm sure Marcel will disagree, but um, uh, uh, that is an opportunity. They could have ID only clients potentially.
4: Marcel, yes, the two biggest banks in the Netherlands got fined from hundreds of millions because uh, the anti-money uh, law. Um, so they didn't didn't do a good job there. So you can't trust it fully. It's, it's not our core business. Um, so that's why I'm afraid if, if, if we um, uh, trust
2: fully on, on, on the banks. Uh, one thing is that Emma made a good point us. Will the average consumer be able to understand identity and digital identity well enough to actually manage it themselves? And then there's basically this choice between, are we going to have one issued by the government? Are we going to have one sitting on a blockchain? Marcel, I know your opinion on the blockchain ID as well, um, or something in between. And I think uh, if we trust, I think the closest would be a bank because the, we trust the bank with our money. We never question that. So I'm not sure if uh, um, if identity ultimately uh, would sit in that scheme and be easier for, for us as a consumer to manage uh, or have part of the management done by my bank, and then, and then I'm, I'm doing the consent and the authorization part myself, but simplify it in that way a little bit more. And agreed that does require banks to now understand that they are not uh, just uh, managing the risk of financial products, but non financial products as well, all of a sudden, uh, which, uh, which are, is ID. Yeah, but you still have the problem. Emma
4: already mentioned that she has on, the, on her desk now several banking cards. So uh, still, y- you have done a lot of different digital identities and not one centralized, what you can really um, control yourself and use by the different banks. Because the banks are not trusting their their credentials from the other bank.
0: I'm just going to log into everything with uh, Facebook, right?
3: Yeah. If you've got a Facebook so, account, which I don't have, so. <laughs> I don't
0: have it. Because I don't,
3: definitely don't trust Facebook.
0: <laughs> so, um, finishing up, if I'm working in a large bank, a large financial services provider, and I'm, working, I'm, I'm a, in the leadership in, in digital, um, what do I need to know or think about or do around digital identity? Like, what should be my on my priority list? Should we start off with
4: Marcel? Um, I think looking around what what's doing worldwide on on, on digital identity uh, because they are um, I still think there there's a um, the GufiK Verify is a very good scheme and it's uh, even in Australia they're looking to the scheme except in the UK themselves they think it's a, it's a bad thing uh, but the whole world is looking to Gav UK Verify as one of the best schemes that uh, that that was a collaboration between uh, public and private sector um, so don't start yourself building something there's so many things out there uh, from, from from different levels of, of security and authorization um, great Emma
3: um, yeah I mean I think the I think the regulation is moving on so um, if I was in a senior uh, leadership function I would be um, getting my teams to look at the regulation um, so that, you know, the FATF have come out with some new um, views on digital identity. Um, And I think really starting to challenge internally, because the thing that I found, because I consulted for uh, quite a number of years, you know, and this isn't true of all compliance departments, but it almost becomes like Chinese whispers in terms of what you can and you can't do. Um, and, you know, the, the regulation is now starting to move forward. So I think it's really now starting to go, okay, what's the regulation actually saying? Let's challenge our our own compliance departments and our own procedures and our own policies so that we can move forward with something different. And that might be adopting new technology, adopting new policies, adopting new processes, but it also might be collaborating with other organisations. And I think also started to really think about whether this problem is a competitive problem or not. Because, you know, seeing it as a zero-sum game and going, oh well bank X down the road is, you know, they're having a load of problem with identity and, you know, therefore that's not my problem. It's not, it's not a zero sum game in that way. And so uh, I think really challenging their thinking about collaboration around this problem, you know, could drive down cost. Um, It it could create a better customer experience, but that means a different mindset because it means I have to think that KYC and all of these things, all these kind of processes that we've built by as like a byproduct of the banking product actually is the banking product we should be focusing people on. And actually we should be building better products and not worrying if customers are going to switch. You know, we should be focusing on, on the products that we're building and just see that as not a competitive issue in terms of identity and start collaborating with other organizations. That's what I would be thinking about.
2: Joe? Yeah, um, just keep going on Emma's point. I think if, if I'm I'm senior leader in a bank, I would be thinking, can I afford not to be part of this ecosystem? Because that's what it is, collaborative model, it's an ecosystem. And um, so they need to recognize the importance. One thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is go back into my organization, see what the innovation guys and what the different journeys and the different product owners have already done. It's a bit back to having a more holistic approach to to all of this and then getting it right, getting that balance between user experience and level of assurance or risk mitigation, getting that right and and gluing what's already been experimented with together because a lot of banks have tried a lot of stuff and a lot of good stuff has happened now that they need to understand the importance and their position in the ecosystem, glue that together and, uh, and understand it's the way forward. There's no doubt about it.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, I've definitely learned a lot today about digital identity. Um, thanks all so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies and, I guess, get involved in the ecosystem? Joe?
2: Um, well, um, on, we're online, obviously, uh, mytechsystems.com, or me personally. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect and continue the conversations. Uh, Marcel?
4: Yes, digidentity.com. Uh, you can find more of us.
2: Emma?
3: Uh, yeah, um, truststamp.ai um, or um, womeninidentity.org are the two places you can find me, or on Twitter, I'm at M Lindley.
1: Perfect. Simon? Uh, you can find me at S Y Taylor on Twitter, or just drop me an email, simon at 11FS.com.
0: And as for me, you can find me at Jason Bates on Twitter and LinkedIn, and of course, with 11FS. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech, who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, pass along the podcast, tell them about the show. If you've got any suggestions or feedback, please do reach out to us on social media. Just search for 11FS or email podcasts at 11fs.com. That's 11FS. Thanks very much. Goodbye.